We'll be focusing on the first 10 verses this morning, Hebrews 10, verses 1 to 10. Let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, this morning as we gather here, we do come broken. We come empty. And yet, Heavenly Father, we come boldly in Christ alone. Not in our own strength or merit of any kind, but in Christ alone. We cry out, Abba, Father. In Christ alone, we do not have a spirit of slavery, but the spirit of adoption. In Christ alone, we are heirs, even co-heirs with Christ. In Christ alone this morning, we have hope. And that song is our hope, or that hope is our song. That hope is the reason that we gather. It is that gospel that we proclaim that we cling to. And so, Heavenly Father, we pray that this morning as we come to this passage, that if there is anything else that has taken hold of our affections, if there is anything else that has tempted us, drawn us away, that even this morning we would repent and turn back to Christ and cling to that, our hope, May we rejoice in the gospel all the more this morning. I pray now in this hour that you would give me clarity of mind and of speech. Give me boldness to proclaim the word of God with authority. That your name may be lifted high. Work in each and every one of our hearts. If our hearts are cold, if our hearts are hard, break them this morning, Heavenly Father. If there is sin in our life, bring it to the forefront of our mind. Do not let us leave this place this morning unchanged. May it be the desire of our hearts that you would work in us through your word, that we may glorify you in all that we say and do. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. There's a commercial on TV. You may have seen it before. It's a Capital One banking commercial. And the commercial starts this way. It's a good-looking man. He's standing there in a bank, and he says, Banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of making decisions. It is even easier then. And then there's a pause and a scene change. And the scene changes from this bank where this good-looking man is standing, and it goes to an outdoor basketball court. And on this basketball court, there are two kids, somewhere between 8 to 12 years old, who are picking basketball teams. And the camera kind of backs up and looks at the group of kids that they're picking their teams from. And among all these other 8 to 12-year-old kids is standing Charles Barkley. Charles Barkley, who is 6'6", he's an 11-time All-Star, the 1993 NBA MVP, 2006 Basketball Hall of Fame inductee, Charles Barkley. 
Obviously, Barkley is the first pick. This little girl says, I'll take Charles Barkley. And he, 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 his reaction is, that he, he's, yes, I still got it. It's an obvious choice, is it not? Even at 59 years old, against other 8 to 12-year-olds, a 6'6", former MVP of the NBA, is the obvious choice. Maybe you've had some obvious choices in your life. Life is full of decisions. It's nice sometimes when an obvious decision comes along. A decision that, that pops up and you don't even have to put thought into it. It is just obvious. This is clearly the best option. For instance, I remember as a kid, sometimes when my dad would be working late, as a janitor, he often did work late, and so he'd get back after we were already in bed, and so we didn't get to spend much time with him during the day. And so sometimes he had this, this thing where he would sneak to our, win- sneak to our window, knock on the window. We could see it was him. He'd, he'd open the window, and he'd say, come on, let's go. We're going to sneak out for ice cream. Obviously, my mom knew that else was going on, but in my mind, she had no idea. This was the, I was sneaking out for ice cream with my dad. So we'd climb out the window, and he'd take us, we'd get in the car, and we'd go get ice cream. Right? That, was an, that was an easy decision. There was not even a temptation to say, no, Dad, I think I want to stay in bed. Right? It's obvious, yes, I'm going to go out the window and go get ice cream with my dad. Obvious decisions. As we come to Hebrews 10 this morning, we see another obvious decision. You see, we've been in Hebrews 9 for five weeks at this point. Hebrews 8, even before that, for even longer. These two chapters that are full of so much. I mean, they are deep. And as we come to Hebrews 10 this morning, in his commentary on Hebrews, David Allen notes this. He says that a fundamental shift in perspective occurs in Hebrews 10, verses 1 to 18. Whereas in Hebrews 9, 11 to 28, the focus was on the objective aspects of Christ's offering. In Hebrews 10, 1 to 18, the focus shifts from the uh, objective to the subjective effects of Christ's offering. You see, in order to get the application of anything right, you have to understand the facts. Hebrews 9, 11 to 28, even going back into Hebrews 8, that is the facts. I think it was necessary for us to spend five weeks in Hebrews 9 to really dig deep and to understand these facts, to to wrap our minds around the blood of Jesus Christ and why it is so powerful. Why it was necessary. And Dr. Allen is right. There is a clear shift here in Hebrews 10, not only from the objective of Hebrews 9 into the subjective of Hebrews 10. But really, there's a shift in really the whole focus of the book. It is here in Hebrews 10 that the author of Hebrews really shifts his focus to his audience and he starts pounding home his expectations of them in light of the doctrine and warnings of Hebrews 1 to 9. Hebrews 10 through the end of the book is very focused on application. And so, really, what we'll see this morning in Hebrews 10, verses 1 to 10 is that because Jesus Christ is superior in every way to the law, as we have seen in Hebrews 7 and 8 and 9, 
Because this is true, Jesus Christ is superior in every way to the law. Therefore, you must not waver in your faith in Jesus Christ. Because he is superior, you must cling to him and to him alone. This morning we will see a comparison between the law and the cross. And we will see that the cross of Christ is the most obvious decision in the history of decisions. And we will rejoice together in that cross this morning. Hebrews 10, verses 1 to 10. As I mentioned this morning, we'll see the law and we'll see the cross we begin here in verses 1 to 4 with the law. As you transition from Hebrews 9 into Hebrews 10, Hebrews 9.28 says this, So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time, apart from sin for salvation. Hebrews 9 ends with the promise that Christ is coming again. But this time, he's not coming to deal with sin. He has already done that. This time he's coming to bring salvation. He's coming to take us home. And we long for that. And so as you come to Hebrews 10, it starts with the word for. For the law. That connects back to the end of Hebrews 9. And really it's answering this question. How can we be sure that Jesus is coming again not to deal with sin, but to bring salvation? How can I be sure that my sin has been dealt with? And as we transition to Hebrews 10, we'll see. Because Jesus has died for your sins. Not because of the law. Not because of the offering of blood and goats. But because of the offering of the blood of Jesus Christ. How can we know? Well, for the law. For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come. And not the very image of the things can never, with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually, year by year, make those who approach perfect. The law cannot make perfect. Why? Well, what do we see here? The law having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things Of the things. The law is a mere shadow. We've already seen language through Hebrews 8 and 9 of the the tabernacle and the furniture in the tabernacle and the whole priestly system. It is a copy of something that is real, something that is in heaven, a real place. And now we see that the whole law, it's really just a shadow of the good things to come. And yet note this also, that even while the author of Hebrews is is building up and and proclaiming Jesus' superiority, he never here puts the law down. It's not that the law was evil. He never disparages the law. In fact, it was connected to the good things. It is a good thing, but it's just a shadow of those good things. It is a shadow that points to something greater. I remember as a young kid, playing outside on a hot summer day, right? And all of a sudden, it would kind of get a little darker outside, and it would get a little cooler. Why? Because a cloud was passing by in front of the sun. 
Or, or maybe you'd see this quick shadow go across the ground. You'd look up, and there was a plane going across. It's like a shadow that passes on the ground. It beckons you to look up to see what caused that shadow. To see what is real. What is it that has substance? Whether it's a cloud or a plane. A shadow always points to something greater. To something real. Likewise, the law beckons its recipients to look ahead and to believe in something greater. The law is just a shadow of something real. Don't fall in love with the shadow. Look to the real. In fact, that's the exact point that the author of Hebrews goes on to make here. The law is just a shadow of the good things to come. It's not the very image of the things. That word image there is important. It's it's the idea of of substance. It's the idea of reality. In fact, we know another passage where this is used well. It's Colossians 1.15. Read that quickly. Colossians 1.15 uses the idea of a shadow as well. He, or Jesus Christ, is the image. There we have that word again. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. The word image here in Hebrews 10 bears the same meaning that it has here in Colossians 1.15. Here in Colossians 1.15, Christ is said to be the image of the invisible God. Christ here, being the image, means that he partakes in the essence or nature of what it means to be God. He is God. He is the same substance. He is the reality of God. He is God. So too here. The law is not the image. It is not the substance. It is not the reality. It is just a shadow. It is inferior because it does not participate in the reality of what it foreshadows or forecasts. It looks ahead and proclaims coming salvation with no power to save itself. The law says, look to the cross. Look ahead. Look for something greater. The law is just a shadow. It is not the image of these greater things to come. The salvation that is coming. There is no substance or reality to it. It's a shadow. Therefore, because the law is just a shadow, because there was no substance of salvation in the law, no power to save in the law, but it was pointing to one who would save, therefore the law can never, with these same sacrifices, all of these sacrifices sacrifices that are connected to the law, it can never... Skip this next part, which they offer continually year by year. We'll come back to that. But notice the sentence here can never, with the same sacrifices, make those who approach perfect. The law cannot bring perfection. The law cannot bring salvation. Now go back to that little parentheses, which they offer continually year by year. The sacrifices are repeated. In fact, the author of Hebrews is here showing that 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 repetition shows the weakness of the law. 
The repetition of these sacrifices testifies to the ineffectiveness of the sacrifices. If they were effective, they would not be, need, need to be repeated. If they could perfect, if they could bring you to salvation, then you would have no more need of doing it every single year. But the fact that these sacrifices need to be repeated continually, over and over again, shows that there is no real saving power in them. They are looking forward to a greater sacrifice, to a sacrifice that will save, that will bring perfection. They cannot make those who approach perfect. The idea there of perfect is not sinless, it's the idea of sanctified. In fact, you can look down into verse 2. For then would they not have ceased to be offered, for the worshippers, once purified, would have no more consciousness of sin. That once purified is the same idea of that perfected. Perfection, purification, salvation, sanctification, glorification. In fact, often the author of Hebrews uses the idea of purification or sanctification in the same way that Paul uses the idea of justification. He is speaking here of salvation. The ability to approach God and his righteousness boldly in Christ. The law can't do that. The law can't do that. It's just a shadow. It's just a shadow. For then would they have not ceased to be offered? The fact that they must be repeated proves that they are not sufficient because once perfected, there, would, there is no more need to be perfected. Worshippers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sin. That's kind of a theme. The author of Hebrews keeps going back to the idea of conscience, the idea of consciousness of sin. In fact, back in Hebrews 9.14... How much more shall the blood of Christ through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? This idea of consciousness of sin is cleansed to the very core. Free from the guilt of sin. But that's not what the law offers. Christ's blood cleanses our consciousness. It takes away all guilt. It frees us from the penalty of sin. There is therefore now no more condemnation than those who are in Christ. But the law can't do that. The law can't get to the conscience. It can't get to the heart. There's still a guilt there. And that guilt is seen in the repeated coming back to the altar to offer another sacrifice because you need to. There's a guilt there. A consciousness of your sin that brings you back. So then, what is the purpose of the sacrifices? What is the purpose of the law? If it's just a shadow, if there's no real power in it, what's the purpose? Look with me at verse 3. But in those sacrifices, there is what? A reminder of sins every year. 
there is a constant reminder of sins. If you are someone who is good at working with your hands, I am not. But if you are, you've probably at some point jerry-rigged something. The idea of a jerry-rig is something that is organized or constructed in a crude or improvised manner, according to Merriam-Webster. For instance, duct tape is famous for jerry-rigging things. If something is broken, you can just take duct tape and wrap it around and it'll be good to go. Holding something together that that really probably should be fixed by a professional or replaced. But it's a temporary fix. Think of another illustration in in college. We were playing, uh, before a soccer game, we realized that one of our best players did not have shin guards. Shin guards are important. They keep your shins from getting broken when your shins get kicked. And uh, once you get into college, people don't really do this anymore, but as you're a kid, the ref even makes you all line up and knock your shin guards to make sure you have them on. They're pretty important. And one of our guys, he's a starter, he realized he didn't have his shin guards on. He had left them in his room, and so he sent his roommate to go and to get them to try and dig through his stuff and find them. But in the meantime, our game was starting, and we needed him. So what he did is he went and he found some cardboard, tore off little pieces, took some tape, stuck them on, wrapped it around, pulled up his sock, and he went out there. Right? It was a jerry-rigged solution. It was not meant to last the whole game. It was not really meant to protect him at all. It was just meant to look like it was protecting him so he could play. That's the way all jerry-rigs work. They're, they're never meant to be a permanent solution. They're temporary solutions to a much bigger problem. In fact, something that is jerry-rigged is a constant reminder of a much bigger problem. It's a constant reminder that you need to address that issue. Every time you use that tool or that thing that has that tape wrapped around it, you remember, I really should fix that. There's a bigger issue here that needs to be taken care of. Likewise, the law and its sacrifices was never meant to be a solution. It is a warning, a sign, a shadow. It is pointing to something greater. It is a constant reminder that there is a big problem here that needs to be dealt with. In fact, it is the very futility and frustration of the law that is the point of the law. Every year as you come back, and every year you see the futility, the frustration of going through this again and again and again, every year it is pointing you to Jesus. It is saying that there is something that is greater that is coming. See, rather than a clean conscience, the law supplied guilt. A yearly reminder of sins. In fact, it was never possible for the law to save. As you see in verse 4, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. It was never possible. And that's okay, because it was never meant to do that. So then, here's the next question. If that is the purpose of the law, 
and the limitation of the law is so clear, then why is the law so attractive to these Hebrew Christians? Why does the author of Hebrews have to write this huge letter warning them against going back to the law? Why is it so tempting if it's so burdensome and so futile? I think we know, all of us in our heart of hearts, we know the answer to that question. It's the same reason why we like to run back to, to things that make us feel good about ourselves. My good works, my church attendance, my, as much as I, my faithful offering giving. We feel better about ourselves when we, when we do things. We feel like we are gaining ground with God, that we are gaining His approval. That's no different than the law. You see, the law is attractive because it is concrete. It is something that I can look at, I can smell, I can see, I can do. It is proof that I can see. The law may be burdensome, but it is something where I can see progress. I can do this. I am responsible to do these things, to find the right kind of animal. I am responsible to get that to the priest. I am responsible to make sure that everything is done just right. And if I fail to be purified, it's because I have failed. It's because I got the wrong animal. It's because I went around about it wrong. It's not because someone else has done. My fate is in my hands. There's a bit of comfort in that. Foolish comfort, I would say. But comfort when, when my fate is in my hands. That is, that is tempting to us. Because to, to believe in Jesus is the exact opposite. To believe in Jesus has put all of my eggs in one basket. It feels risky. It feels dangerous. I want to have control. It's like the silly illustration of a, a trust fall. Right? You've probably seen that before. Adam, if you'll... I'm just kidding. I'm not going to make Adam come here and do it. But you've probably seen that before. It's a silly illustration, right? Someone stands, or, or even you could do it here. Someone stands here, and then you just fall backwards. Trust me that I will catch you. Why is that so hard? Why do we want to put our hands back, you know, or take a step back? Because we like to have things in our control. When I am doing that and I'm falling back completely empty, I have to trust the other person to take my whole weight. Everything is in their hands and not in mine. And with Jesus, it's the same thing, except it is eternity that is at stake. I want to have control. And yet we fail to realize all along is that that proof that we think we have, that concrete proof of the law, it's not proof of forgiveness. It's proof of my guilt and my constant pursuit of forgiveness. In fact, it, the fact that I go back to it time and time again is the proof that I'm still pursuing it. We like to have things under our control. We're so tempted to think that, that we can earn God's pleasure whether it's by how we dress, how we act, the things that we do, or even the things that we don't do. There's a comfort in the law, 
as burdensome as it is, because it's in my control. The difficulty is in the difficulty in trusting is that it takes all of the power out of my hands. And yet at the same time, the beauty of trust is that it takes all the power and responsibility out of my hands and gives it to someone so much greater. We fail to realize that that concrete feeling of the law, that is the weakness of the law because it can't provide salvation. And the law is screaming at us, I can't save you. I'm here to tell you, point you to someone who can. So by showing the weakness of the law, the author of Hebrews is really drilling right down into the heart of his readers. Because the very thing that they and that we are striving after, the law cannot and never could provide. But there is one whose sacrifice does bring the forgiveness of sins. It is Jesus Christ and his cross. That's what you see next in verses 5 to 10. The cross. The cross. Therefore, because of the purpose of the law, because of the weakness of the law, because of the sacrifices and their inability to save, therefore, therefore, this is what Jesus has done. When he came into the world, he said... This is interesting here because this quote is from Psalm 40, verses 6 to 8. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire. A body you've prepared for me and burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin. You, have, you had no pleasure. It's from Psalm 40, verses 6 to 8. It's a psalm of David. And yet by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it is applied to and really even attributed to Jesus here. When he came into the world, he said... The author of Hebrews is saying that these were Jesus' words. One commentator notes this, that pre-existence is most likely implied here. It's as if through the psalm we are invited into heaven at the incarnation. As Jesus takes his body, it is not reluctantly, and here we see his intention and his motivation. As he comes at the incarnation, this is why. Because sacrifices and offerings you did not desire. But a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Those things couldn't save. They never could save. Then I said, behold, I have come. In the volume of book, it is written about me. The Old Testament is all about Jesus Christ, his prophecy looking forward to the one who will come. He comes with purpose and promise to do what? To do your will, O God. It's interesting as you look at this passage here in Psalm 40. It really takes on a whole new meaning here. You see, David's point in Psalm 40, in these verses, is that apart from faith, these sacrifices and offerings are meaningless. They make you feel good about yourself. But apart from faith, they're they're meaningless. They're empty. God does not desire empty obedience, but faith-filled action. So in a sense, remarkably, David's really making the same point as the author of Hebrews has just made in verses 1-4. to 
These are good things, but it points to something greater. But now applied to Jesus, it takes on a whole new meaning. Jesus was not sent to offer sacrifices. He was sent to be the sacrifice that all these other sacrifices point to. He didn't come to offer burnt sacrifices. He came to offer himself. He didn't take a body so that he could stand there in Aaron's place and offer sacrifices. He took a body so that he could be the sacrifice. That's what the Old Testament points to in the volume of the book. It is written of me. All of the prophecy of the Old Testament, everything in the Old Testament is looking forward to this one who will come, to this sacrifice. And notice he doesn't come reluctantly but willingly to do your will, O God. This has been God's will from the beginning, in fact. One commentator notes how often the notion of God's will is connected with man's redemption. You see that in John 4, 34, John 5, 30, John 6, 38 to 40, Ephesians 1, 5, Ephesians 1, 9, Ephesians 1, 11, 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, 1 Timothy 2, 4. All of these passages talk about our redemption being God's will. Verse 8 goes on to repeat, to really kind of drive home this point, previously saying, sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offerings for sin you did not desire, nor had any pleasure in them. These things which are offered according to the law, again, even as the author of Hebrews is writing this, even as he's attributing this to Jesus, he's not saying that these sacrifices were bad. They were offered according to the law. It is God himself who set this up. They served a purpose. But that purpose was not to save. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. I have come to do your will. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. You see, Jesus satisfies and fulfills the law not primarily in the sense that he kept the law, but primarily in the sense that he is the one that the law was pointing forward to. He is the one that all along the law was pointing to. He is the fulfillment. There is one that is coming that is greater. There is a sacrifice that is coming that will be efficient and effective. And it's not found in the blood of bulls and goats. It is found in Jesus Christ alone. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. The first covenant and the first tabernacle and the first sacrifice, they have given way to the second covenant. The heavenly tabernacle and the final and definitive sacrifice. That which is second and later is better and superior. The first anticipates and points to the second. But once the second has come, believers should not revert back to the first. The shadow has served its purpose. Don't cling to that shadow when the real is here. Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. Establish a second. And then we see in verse 10 the power. 
of the cross. By that will, the will of God that he accomplished in Christ, by that will we have been sanctified. Or perfected, you could say. This points all the way back to verse 10.1. The things that the law could not do, God has done in Christ by sending his own son in the likeness of sin and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh, as Romans 8 says. Jesus does what the law could never do. He is the sacrifice that brings salvation. He is the sacrifice that brings sanctification. Through the offering of his body. That body that he took willingly in the will of God. That he came in the incarnation. Not through the law and his sacrifices. But through the body of Jesus Christ. Offered once for all. Again, once for all. You've already seen the weakness of the law. And the fact that it had to be repeated over and over and over and over. Jesus died once. The effectiveness of his sacrifice is seen in the efficiency of his sacrifice. He died once for all. He died once for you and for me. Each month, We take purposeful time as a church to gather around the Lord's table. And as we do that, we are gathering to remember. It's a solemn time, and yet as we gather at that table, it's also a hope-filled and a joyful time. It is serious what we are doing, but it is a joyful message that we proclaim. It is joyful. Because under the law, there's a yearly reminder of sin. But under the cross, there's a constant reminder of grace. As we gather at that table, we are proclaiming the grace of God. We're not being reminded of our sin. We're being reminded of our Savior. And we're looking forward to eternity, even as we look back at the cross. Because these promises are sure. Because he is coming again, not to deal with sin, because that's been dealt with. He's coming to take us home. So remember the grace of God for you in Christ this morning. This passage is really a gospel passage. This is really a gospel message. But it's not really a gospel message for the unsaved. It's a gospel message for those of us who are in Christ. It is a reminder of what you have in Christ. It is a reminder of the power of that blood. Maybe like these Hebrew believers, you're tempted to turn to something more concrete. Maybe you look to your church attendance or to the fact that you haven't missed your devotions in the last five years. Maybe those are the things that you look to and you find validation. Yes, I am, I am doing well with God. And all the time, you fail to realize that that is not what it's about. Those concrete things that you cling to are the very things 
that are pulling you away because you're looking to them rather than looking to Christ. Yes, devotions are good. Yes, church attendance is good. But not because it makes God more happy with you. Those are good things because of what God has done for you in Christ. Those are good things because of the grace that is yours in Christ. So be strengthened in your faith as you look to the cross. You. This morning, if you are in Christ, you are fully accepted in Christ by God. You are not less accepted because you skipped your devotions this morning. You are not less accepted because you haven't been to church in the last month. Those are good things, and those are things that we as believers should be striving after and doing. But your salvation, your standing in Christ before God is in Christ alone. So be strengthened in your faith and encouraged this morning that you are fully accepted in Christ. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never believed to begin with. Maybe as we've been talking about the blood of Jesus, maybe as we've been talking about the cross and the law, maybe these are things that are kind of going over your head. They don't seem to make sense. But even as we've talked about this, you've you've seen the fact that you are a sinner and you recognize that. And the Bible tells us that our sin separates us from God. And yet, in Christ, there is salvation. That sin that would condemn you to hell justly has been dealt with by Jesus Christ if you will just place your faith in Him. It's not about being good. Believe and be saved. If you're here this morning and that is you, or if you're here this morning and you have any questions, even as we close this morning with a song, I would encourage you, come forward. I'll be standing here at the front and I would love nothing more than to take a Bible to go to my office and to point you to Jesus Christ and answer any questions that you may have. Don't leave this place without dealing with those questions, those things that the Lord is doing inside of you.